Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Fueling debate. Alberta insists Ottawa's plan to cut oil and gas emissions will mean economic disaster. But Environment Minister Stephen Gilbeau tells us the real disaster would be not tackling emissions. Journalism under fire. A new investigation finds that the Israeli military most likely targeted journalists in Lebanon. Our guest says reporters must be protected and those responsible must be held to account. Thinking inside the box, a new Barbie honours the first woman to be the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. A former colleague likes the effort, but doesn't necessarily like the likeness. It's a wonderful afterlife. Well, actually, I guess that depends on whether you think the late Jimmy Stewart would have wanted an AI version of his voice to be used in a meditation app. Light in the dark, Hanukkah begins tonight, and we begin our annual tradition of holiday readings with Zlaté the Goat, the story of how a remarkable animal saves herself and her human. And a concerted effort when an Australian music fan saw that the record for most concerts attended in one year was a mere 86 he was offended and inspired to set his own plan in motion and in motion. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio with a powerful gig reflex. Canada has a plan that would see the oil and gas industry cut emissions by more than a third by 2030 or by offsets to compensate. But whether that plan becomes a reality remains to be seen. The federal government announced the cap-and-trade policy while facing pressure on two fronts. Environmentalists say urgent action is needed at a time of record temperatures, wildfires, and other climate-related disasters. Meanwhile, Alberta and Saskatchewan strongly object to the plan and say they will fight it in court. Here's Alberta Premier Danielle Smith. Justin Trudeau and his eco-extremist Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, Stephen Gibbeau, are risking hundreds of billions of dollars in investment in Alberta's and Canada's economy and core social programs. They're devaluing the retirement investments of millions of Canadians, and they're threatening the jobs of hundreds of thousands of Albertans. Stephen Gilbo is Canada's Environment Minister. We reached him in Dubai, where he's attending the COP28 Climate Summit. Minister Gilbo, what do you say to Premier Smith, but also to people who are genuinely concerned about their jobs? I saw a quote this week from Alberta oil companies who said that they were, and I quote, mystified by the reaction of Premier Smith and the Alberta government to a, a, another regulation we, we put out last week on reducing methane emission, a very powerful greenhouse gas. Um, I think... This reaction from the Premier has no basis in reality. It's not based on fact. It's based on hyperbole. It's based on fear uh, and fear-mongering. And she is the Premier who has put in place a moratorium 
on the development of renewable energy in Alberta. She's putting at risk billions of dollars of investment in her province. Thousands of jobs are at risk because of what she's doing, and she's accusing me of, of this. It's, it's quite fascinating. There are others, though, who agree with her. Um, Scott Moe is one of them. Others uh, in the industry are concerned uh, about this. But specifically, Premier Smith also said in that statement that Alberta has its own strategy, investments in emissions, reducing technology, she said today, practical emissions offsets, uh, as she put it. So why is that not a sound strategy in your view? Why is your plan better? Well, because her plan is not aimed at reducing the overall pollution that we're seeing in Canada. And and I think many, many Canadians and, and, and listeners of your show want their government to show leadership when it comes to, to tackling pollution and, and particularly climate change. After the summer, we, we've seen with record forest fires that have forced the evacuation of tens of thousands of Canadians, hurricanes, record hurricanes on the east coast of Canada, atmospheric rivers in British Columbia that have created havoc, they want the government to intervene in a responsible manner, and that's exactly what we're doing. The proposal we, we've put forward today is the result of 25,000 comments that we've received on our consultation paper, more than 150 submissions, 100 meetings we've had with, with industry, provinces, territories, indigenous leaders, experts, environmental organizations. We've worked very hard on this, and, and we feel it's a responsible way to ensuring that the oil and gas sector does its fair share when it comes to tackling climate change pollution, as other sectors of the of the Canadian economy are doing, whether it's transportation, whether it's heavy industry, the electricity sector. All of those sectors are putting in place measures to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, their climate change pollution. And frankly, so far, while they're making record-level profits, the oil and gas sector hasn't made those investments, so this regulation will ensure that they make those investments, that they ensure that we continue having jobs in the oil and gas sector in a world where we will consume less fossil fuels, and, and those fossil fuels we will consume will have to be low-polluting ones, because otherwise there simply won't be a market for what we produce in Canada. Premier Smith says that Alberta is going to take your plan to court. Are you concerned that your plan might not survive that challenge? I'm not. Why? Uh, because, as I said, we, we've worked extensively. We did lots of consultations. We will continue doing consultations. And in the 2021 Supreme Court case on carbon pricing, the Supreme Court was very clear that the federal government can and, in fact, should intervene when it comes to fighting climate change and fighting climate change pollution. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're not going after the production of oil and gas in Canada. We're going after the pollution, and that's what we're putting in place, a cap on pollution, and that those levels of pollutions will have to go down. You've, you've underlined that this is not a, a cap on production in your statement, as well as what you just said in your comments there, but the opposite keeps coming up. We heard from Premier Smith, uh, also Ensign Energy Services President Bob Geddes, quoted in the Calgary Herald, saying a cap on production is the biggest existential threat to the sector. You're saying it's not a cap on production. They are saying it is. How can both things be true? Well, because those comments are, are based on no analysis whatsoever. And, and we've provided analysis that actually shows that production could increase by 2030 compared to 2019 levels, while the levels of pollutions 
go down. So I would like to see the evidence. I would like to see the data that leads those people to say that it, it will result in, in reduction in, in production because the analysis we've done. And in fact, we, we sat down with, with companies and, and, and they shared with us information under non-disclosure agreements. So we, we have done the work with those companies, with many of those companies, to ensure that what we're doing will tackle pollution and not production. The next question, though, is will it actually come to fruition? Will it become a reality? Because we know from the Federal Environmental Commissioner that Canada has never met any of the emission reduction goals it has set since 1990. We are the only G7 country whose emissions are now higher than they were in 1990. And Mr. DeMarco said last month that your government is not on track to meet its 2030 goal right now. So why should Canadians who, who maybe like what they're seeing in what you've released today, well, why should they have confidence that it's actually going to work? We've never met any targets because we've never tried, because we've never deployed the necessary efforts and legislation and regulation and investment to do that. And in the last year and a half alone, I introduced new regulations that are called clean fuel standards to ensure that refineries reduce the carbon footprint of the fuel that they sell to us. I've introduced regulations on vehicles to ensure that by 2035, 100% of vehicles sold in Canada are zero-emission vehicles, clean electricity regulations. We phased out fossil fuel subsidies. We're the only G20 country that, that has done that. But we will only be able to achieve our targets if we continue working on it, because we're not there yet. And unfortunately, none of this will be possible under a government led by Pierre Poilievre because he doesn't believe that climate change is an issue, and he doesn't believe we should do anything. And all of these things fly out the door if Pierre Poilievre becomes Prime Minister of Canada. Minister Gilbo, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Stephen Gilbo is the Federal Minister of the Environment. He's in Dubai. In October, seven journalists perched on a hill on Lebanon's southern border. It seemed like a safe spot to capture images of Hezbollah missiles being launched into Israel. They wore helmets and flak jackets marked press. Across the hood of one of their cars were the letters TV. Then came two blasts. And when the smoke cleared, six of the journalists were injured, and one, Reuters photojournalist Issam Abdallah, was dead. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Reuters, and the wire service AFP subsequently launched a joint investigation. Today, they released their report, which concludes that the journalists were intentionally targeted by the Israeli military. It describes the incident as a war crime. The IDF has apologized for the incident and has issued a statement saying it does not target journalists. Sharif Mansour monitors the conflict for the nonprofit organization, the Committee to Protect Journalists, which also issued a statement today on journalist deaths in the conflict. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Sharif, as you've looked into this investigation and the details, what evidence do you see that might indicate this was a deliberate attack on civilians, on journalists by the IDF? Well, we have known from eyewitness account 
that the shelling and the missile that have hit the journalists came from the Israeli army side. But the new investigation provide forensic evidence that was independently investigated from the scene that shows the kind of missile that they used and also prove and connect it to an Israeli army vehicle. It also shows what eyewitness account have shown that it wasn't just one missile, it was two separated, which means that it wasn't just a one-off mistake, but there was a follow-up to it. And this also incorporates other signs that those journalists have already shown before, including that there was no fighting in the scene, in the vicinity of the place they were using, uh, at least a kilometer and a half away from the border where Israeli army is uh, stationed. And they were also away from the location where the Hezbollah fighters were shelling. They also have had held their cameras out for an hour at least before the shelling. And, and during their time there, the, an Israeli helicopter was overhead. They were seen by Israeli army. They said that um, they have been noticed. They could see there is a, a direct eyesight to the Israeli location. And uh, all of the outlets involved have produced their own reporting, corroborating what we've heard today from Amnesty and Reuters and AFP. It's very much the type of location, just for our listeners, you know, for, for reporters who've been to, to conflict zones or overseas or really any story you're covering, you're trying to get a clear vantage point. You're following all the guidelines to be as safe as possible because your outlets will not let you go to somewhere that, that they haven't thought very specifically about where you're positioned. So it, it is a wide open space. They were clearly, clearly marked. Yeah, this is why we at CPJ from the first day, we have called for an independent investigation into the incidents. We have also supported the Lebanese government uh, appeal to the UN to investigate the incident. Uh, this is also one of the priority cases we have seen uh, that also replicated in Gaza where we've seen journalists with press marking have been killed by Israeli bullets in the early days of the war and also bombardment and airstrikes later on. As you know, in the past, in the immediate aftermath of what happened, the IDF issued an apology. In response to this latest investigation, the IDF said to Reuters, quote, we don't target journalists, end quote. How does that response sit with you? Well, we issued a report in May. Uh, we we have said that there was a pattern of responses by the IDF to try and evade responsibility of the killing. And part of that pattern was that they would only say their open investigation if the journalist involved was working with an international news organization or had a foreign passport. But even when they do so, it's carcery preliminary probes that doesn't lead to anyone being charged. And no one of the, uh, in the 20 cases of journalists who have been killed 
by IDF fire over the course of 21 years, no one was held accountable. Your organization, the Committee to Protect Journalists, has been gathering data, we should let our listeners know, on journalist deaths since 1992. And today you put the number of journalists killed in this current conflict at 63. And in terms of a breakdown of that tally, 56 of them, you've said, are Palestinian, four of them Israeli journalists, and three from Lebanon. What is different this time? Because journalists go to conflict zones, they take risks. But what are you seeing that's that's so remarkably different this time? Well, the majority, the absolute majority, 90% of those journalists were killed are Palestinian journalists um, who were on the front lines. They had no uh, choice to be there. Um, we have, over the course of past Gaza wars, I've seen dwindling number of international journalists having physical presence of international journalists in the Gaza Strip because of journalists being killed and also media facilities being bombed over the year. Just two years ago, the Ashtut Press building in Al Jazeera uh, uh, office were bombed by Israeli bombardment. We're basically seeing not just a blackout and you, mm-hmm. we're seeing a news blackout. In this latest investigation, if this case was in fact a deliberate killing, the deliberate targeting of a journalist. What does justice look like for you, for these reporters? Well, justice means that there will be an independent, transparent investigation that the people involved should be held accountable and basically uh, charged in criminal prosecution. We want to see justice by having those soldiers uh, held accountable, but also by having the IDF review the rules of engagement to add safeguards to ensure there are no targeting of journalists or media facilities, and by seeing Israeli government allies raising these issues directly and publicly with their counterparts. Sharif, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Sharif Mansour is the Middle East and North Africa Program Coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists. We reached him in Washington, D.C. David James Young is one of the hardest working people in the Australian music scene. Night in and night out, he's at the clubs making sure everything sounds good. He's not a roadie and he's not a lighting or sound guy. As he puts it, he's a guy who goes to shows. Mr. Young is a music journalist, and when he says he's a guy who goes to shows, he means he's a guy who goes to shows. Last year, he says he attended more than 320 live shows, and this year, he's not just planning to beat his own personal record, but also that of Joshua Beck, who holds the Guinness World Record for most concerts attended in one year. We reached David James Young in Wollongong, Australia. David, what's on the bill tonight? Who are you going to see? I'm Tonight, I'm seeing an uh, American band called Quicksand. What number will this be in terms of how many concerts you've seen? Well, that that's this two year. separate questions <laughs> um, because, um, yeah, as as has been established, I'm I'm going for a Guinness World Record, 
but not every show that I go to is eligible for the record. Well, we'll talk about that criteria, uh, but just for by the how many? Yeah. What's the number? Overall, um, including every show that I've been to this year, um, this will be about 335. But just counting uh, the eligible shows, this will be uh, just over, just over 230. I'm pretty sure. So you didn't start out. This wasn't your res- resolution in January to <laughs> try to break the, this this record. It sounds like you just no, wanted no. to see as many shows as you as you wanted. But when when did things change? I honestly hadn't even considered that this record was something that existed until May of this year. It was around May of this year. I got tagged in a post by the Guinness World Records uh, where they had shared, oh, this person has, like, what I thought had set the record for uh, the what the official title is most concerts attended in one year. And I was just like, uh, when I saw the number, I was just like, oh, this must be like when you bet, like when you bet $1 on the prices, right? And you win, like it was one of those sort of <laughs> things because they'd only gone to 86 shows. That's just And then Beck. I found out yeah. that, yes. Uh, and then I found out that, that this guy had broken the record and it was only about 60 something <laughs> before the, that. One of the uh, quotes that I think it was attributed to one of your friends said it was some it was, to them it felt like winning a weightlifting championship by lifting one dumbbell. <laughs> That's the comparison. Yeah, that gave. was me. Yeah. That was you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it just it just it didn't feel right, you know. Like this is supposed to be like <laughs> something for you know extraordinary oh, things. David. You know, you see the, the the person with the longest fingernails. You see the person with the longest beard. Yeah, you know, we've covered, we the, do a lot of Guinness content yeah. on this program over the years. Oh, of course. Yeah. So mm. you, you're picking up what I'm putting down, right? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. One of those. Yeah. I feel your, I feel your rage. Things. I mean, it's palpable from the other side <laughs> of the world. So this summer, we also spoke to a man, Roger Merlot. He's a retired mechanic in London, and he had a streak. Uh, he was going to a concert every night for 725 days before the pandemic hit. Is that more acceptable to you, more in line with? You know what the challenge, the kind of challenge we're and we're talking about here. I love that. That's incredible. I don't think I I've been able to manage that. I've definitely like had a streak of like several weeks where there's just been so so much happening. But like, there are certain nights like where it's just like, was this dude like doing stuff on Christmas Eve, like Christmas night as well? Like, was there some somehow a gig happening somewhere? Like, I, I'm genuinely impressed by that because sometimes. Like, I want to go to something and there's just nothing happening. You mentioned the criteria earlier. What is the specific criteria that the criteria that that you have to meet here for the shows? Yes. So there's a lot of paperwork, as I have since discovered. The venue capacity has to be a minimum of 200 people. Um, so they don't have to be 200 people there. It's just the size of the venues themselves have to be a minimum of 200 people. Furthermore... Uh, I also need independent witness statements from each show oh. verifying that I was in attendance uh, as as well as either photo or video that I've taken from each show and, you know, some form of ticket stub or confirmation that I was, yeah, that I was there, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, there's, there's a bunch of stuff that they need, like evidence-wise, to verify that I was at each show. And so I've been basically compiling that over the last few months and yeah it's been quite the task 
I mean, everybody gets tired, though. I mean, I'm with you, like, seize the day, go out, see these live shows. But, I mean, sometimes you just want to stay in and sleep. Oh, absolutely I do. And there's been many times where I've I've wanted to do that. And, you know, it can be very draining and, and very, very exhausting. But basically the reason th- that gets me out, the, the thing that gets me out the door is knowing what the alternative looks like because i've been stuck in my room in my house in my in my apartment here in in australia for months on end over 2020 and 2021 and i know what that alternative looks like and i know what a world and a reality looks like without live music and i hated it so even if i am exhausted i think back to that time and i'm just like never again a pleasure speaking with you david thank you oh absolute pleasure thanks for having me that was david james young who's attempting to set a new guinness world record for most concerts attended in one year we reached him in wollongong australia Well, now, uh, listen to this, would you? I mean, heck, you'd never believe it in a million years. Uh, This meditation app, uh, whatever that is, is using my voice in a bedtime story. Now, now doesn't that sound like a boatload of malarkey? It's it's okay, I'll stop. But uh, I I know that was not a great Jimmy Stewart impression, but at least I did it the old-fashioned way by watching part of It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas for years in a post-turkey stupor and then attempting to mimic him from memory using my human mouth, unlike this AI Jimmy Stewart impersonator, which has no mouth at all. Well, hello. I'm James Stewart. But, well, you can call me Jimmy. Tonight, I'm going to tell you a story... It's a heartwarming story of love, of loss, of hope, and of joy. That is an AI version of Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stew Artificial, if you will, reading a bedtime story. You can find the whole thing on the Calm app if you want. Now, why would Calm virtually resurrect the late Mr. Stewart without his permission? Well, a spokesperson for the app told the New York Times, quote, Stewart is one of the most beloved actors in history with a voice that is heartwarming to many, unquote. To many. Well, many is a lot. So clearly, Calm is hoping many of those many will subscribe to the app just so that wonderful voice can lull them to sleep. Now, is it wrong because it's ghoulish or is it wrong because it's a bad imitation? I mean, listen to this again. Well, hello. I'm James Stewart. But, well, you can call me Jimmy. Now, here is the real Jimmy Stewart. Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. 
And here's the real Jimmy Stewart again. Ah, doggone it. Why can't you just leave me alone for the love of Pete? (laughs) Actually, that was me again. Sorry to trick you. Anyway, there's nothing we can do to stop it, I guess. We will be inundated with dead celebrity voices for the rest of our lives now. This is the future, Stewarts and all. Her first and last names were memorable, but for obvious reasons, people tended to ask about Wilma Mankiller's surname. It actually refers to a traditional Cherokee military rank, but she was known to joke, Mankiller is actually a well-earned nickname. Ms. Mankiller was the first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation and led the tribe for a decade. She expanded early education and rural health care and received the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She died in 2010. Now she's receiving another, more surprising honor, a Barbie doll in her likeness, as part of the Inspiring Women series. Ross Swimmer is a former principal chief of the Cherokee Nation. He selected Wilma Mankiller as his running mate in 1983. He's in Washington, D.C. Ross, I've seen some side-by-side photographs. I wouldn't say it's a spinning image of Wilma Mankiller. What's your sense in terms of the comparison? Oh, I I would give it maybe... uh... likeness. And apart from the likeness, how do you think about her being recognized in this way? You knew her? Well, I I did know Wilma very well. Uh, I think that she would appreciate it. I'm not sure that uh, given the image of Barbie that it fits her that well, but I think the fact that she was chosen uh, will serve interest well of uh, young people, especially young girls. And I know Barbie is one of those products that's been around for uh, I don't know how many years, but many, many years, at least it's 70 or 80 I'm aware of. So uh, I, I think that uh, having her portrayed in this way uh, can be helpful and uh, you know would probably be appreciated by Wilma. And so I'm hoping that it uh, serves that purpose. Our listeners will have just heard in the introduction some of Wilma Mankiller's achievements, but just just tell us why she was such um, a powerful leader and an inspirational one for a lot of people. So she had, you know, seven or eight years uh, of tribal work that was her experience. And so I was looking for someone to run, not directly with me, because we were elected on separate ballots, but to run for the office of deputy principal chief. I always wanted someone in that office that I could work with, feel comfortable with, and so I asked her if she would put her name up to be uh, uh, elected deputy chief if I were elected principal chief, and uh, she agreed to do that. It took a little effort, but uh, she came around and said she would do it, And uh, we did both get elected. It was a bit of a controversy. I had some people that didn't think a woman should be in a tribal leadership position. And uh, I I didn't think anything about it. Strong women are 
good to have in any kind of position, and Wilma was very capable. And then, uh, of course, I, I had not planned on doing it, but uh, two years later, I was uh, nominated by uh, President Reagan to be the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs, and uh, I, I told the administration I, I would go, I would do the job only if I was sure that Wilma would assume the office of Principal Chief. Uh, she was reluctant, uh, <laughs> uh, not not too much, but it took a day or two for her to think about it and recognize uh, the well the difficulty and the challenge of it because the tribe even then was really growing. It was growing fast. It was uh, getting involved in lots of claims cases against the government. Uh, it was a time of sovereignty renewal among many tribes. There, there were a lot of issues, both uh, local political issues and federal issues within the uh, Department of the Interior that uh, needed attention of all tribal leaders. Some members of the Cherokee Nation, you may have heard, have some misgivings and some concerns, mixed feelings about the, this doll. They say there, there wasn't enough consultation. Uh, her estate uh, and her husband were consulted, but her daughter says she was never consulted on this. Uh, and to the Associated Press, some in the community say the Cherokee language symbols on the packaging actually translate to chicken rather than, than Cherokee. Well, uh, I would have the same feeling about it when I was told that, uh, that the Cherokee language, which is, is pretty uh, a pretty strong language today, and, and the tribe is spending millions of dollars to make sure that we don't lose the language and you know, have a, a language school. Uh, I, it, it's hard to imagine that, uh, that the company didn't uh, make sure that the symbols were correct, that were used to spell the word Cherokee. And I'm really, I am surprised that uh, her daughter was not uh, consulted. Uh, Charlie, I talked, Charlie Soap called me, her mm-hmm. husband, and uh, he seemed to be pretty enthused about the idea. And uh, I said, well, it, you know, it, it's certainly fine with me, but uh, I, I guess I would agree with some of the criticism regarding the wardrobe and and her likeness. Mattel uh, says it is discussing options. It's aware uh, of the problem. That's what they say to the Associated Press. But if young people have this doll or whoever purchases this iteration of the doll and future ones perhaps, when they're looking at this doll and into its eyes, what do you hope they take away and learn about Miss Mankiller? Well, I think it's uh, good that young people, and I presume that's really the audience that Mattel is looking at, that uh, young people of all races will see that here is an American Indian woman who has been the leader of the largest tribe in the United States that has uh, uh, led it to kind of fame and fortune, done a very good job, capable of uh, doing extraordinary things, and that they would like to to be in that image, that they would hope someday they could do something like uh, this uh, Cherokee woman has done. This hopefully will encourage young people, as uh, I know uh, had two sisters growing up, that they thought the Barbie doll was 
you know, wonderful when, mm-hmm. they, when they were very young. Well, Ross, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Ross Swimmer is the former United States Assistant Secretary of the Interior for Indian Affairs and former Principal Chief of the Cherokee Nation. We reached him in Washington, D.C. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. They've become popular for keeping lawns trimmed and fainting on YouTube, but most goats are still kept as a source of some kind of sustenance. And so it was with Zlaté the goat. The animal is at the center of a tale by Isaac Beshevis Singer. And in that tale, Zlaté's owners have a lot of affection for her, but they're also relying on her to survive. But how she would survive and save a life while doing so would surprise the family, as you'll hear in tonight's reading of that Hanukkah story by the late As It Happens co-host Alan Maitland. At Hanukkah time, the road from the village to the town is usually covered with snow, but this year the winter had been a mild one. Hanukkah had almost come, yet little snow had fallen. The sun shone most of the time. The peasants complained that because of the dry weather, there would be a poor harvest of winter grain. New grass sprouted, and the peasants sent their cattle out to pasture. For Reuven the furrier, it was a bad year, and after long hesitation, he decided to sell Zlaté the goat. She was old and gave little milk. Fafel, the town butcher, had offered eight gulden for her. Such a sum would buy Hanukkah candles, potatoes and oil for pancakes, gifts for the children, and other holiday necessaries for the house. Reuven told his oldest boy, Aaron, to take the goat to town. Aaron understood what taking the goat to Fafel meant, but he had to obey his father. Leah, his mother, wiped the tears from her eyes when she heard the news. Aaron's younger sisters, Anna and Miriam, cried loudly. Aaron put on his quilted jacket and a cap with earmuffs, bound a rope around Zlaté's neck, and took along two slices of bread with cheese to eat on the road. Aaron was supposed to deliver the goat by evening, spend the night at the butcher's, and return the next day with the money. While the family said goodbye to the goat, and Aaron placed the rope around her neck, Zlaté stood as patiently and good-naturedly as ever. She licked Reuven's hand. She shook her small white beard. Zlaté trusted human beings. She knew that they always fed her and never did her any harm. When Aaron brought her out on the road to town, she seemed somewhat astonished. She'd never been led in that direction before. She looked back at him questioningly, as if to say, "'Where are you taking me?' But after a while she seemed to come to the conclusion that a goat shouldn't ask questions. Still, the road was different. They passed new fields, pastures and huts with thatched roofs. Here and there a dog barked and came running after them, but Aaron chased it away with his stick. 
The sun was shining when Aaron left the village. Suddenly, the weather changed. A large black cloud with a bluish center appeared in the east and spread itself rapidly over the sky. A cold wind blew in with it. The crows flew low, croaking. At first, it looked as if it would rain, but instead it began to hail as in summertime. It was early in the day, but it became dark as dusk, and after a while the hail turned to snow. In his twelve years, Aaron had seen all kinds of weather, but he had never experienced a snow like this one. It was so dense, it shut out the light of the day. In a short time, their path was completely covered. The wind became as cold as ice. The road to town was narrow and winding. Aaron no longer knew where he was. He could not see through the snow. The cold soon penetrated his quilted jacket. At first, Zlata didn't seem to mind the change in weather. She, too, was twelve years old and knew what winter meant. But when her legs sank deeper and deeper into the snow, she began to turn her head and look at Aaron in wonderment. Her mild eyes seemed to ask, Why are we out in such a storm? Aaron hoped that a peasant would come along with his cart, but no one passed by. The snow grew thicker, falling to the ground in large, whirling flakes. Beneath it, Aaron's boots touched the softness of a ploughed field. He realized that he was no longer on the road. He had gone astray. He could no longer figure out which was east or west, which way was the village, the town. The wind whistled, howled, whirled the snow about in eddies. It looked as if white imps were playing tag on the fields. A white dust rose above the ground. Zlatis stopped. She could walk no longer. Stubbornly, she anchored her cleft hooves in the earth and bleated, as if pleading to be taken home. Icicles hung from her white beard, and her horns were glazed with frost. Aaron did not want to admit the danger, but he knew just the same that if they did not find shelter, they would freeze to death. This was no ordinary storm. It was a mighty blizzard. The snowfall had reached his knees. His hands were numb, and he could no longer feel his toes. He choked when he breathed. His nose felt like wood, and he rubbed it with snow. Zlatis' bleating began to sound like crying. Those humans in whom she had so much confidence had dragged her into a trap. Aaron began to pray to God for himself and for the innocent animal. Suddenly, he made out the shape of a hill. He wondered what it could be. Who would pile snow into such a huge heap? He moved toward it, dragging Zlata after him. When he came near it, he realized that it was a large haystack which the snow had blanketed. Aaron realized immediately that they were saved. With great effort, he dug his way through the snow. He was a village boy and knew what to do. When he reached the hay, he hollowed out a nest for himself and the goat. No matter how cold it may be outside, in the hay it is always warm, and hay was food for Zlata. The moment she smelled it, she became contented and began to eat. Outside, the snow continued to fall. It quickly covered the passageway Aaron had dug. But a boy and an animal need to breathe, and there was hardly any air in their hideout. Aaron bored a kind of window through the hay and snow and carefully kept the passage clear. Zlate, having eaten her fill, sat down on her hind legs and seemed to have regained her confidence in man. Aaron ate his two slices of bread and cheese, but after the difficult journey he was still hungry. He looked at Zlate and noticed her udders were full. He lay down next to her, placing himself so that when he milked her he could squirt the milk into his mouth. It was rich and sweet. Zlate was not accustomed to being milked that way, but she didn't resist. On the contrary, she seemed eager to reward Aaron for bringing her to a shelter whose very walls, floor, and ceiling were made of food. 
Through the window, Aaron could catch a glimpse of the chaos outside. The wind carried before it whole drifts of snow. It was completely dark, and he didn't know whether night had already come or whether it was the darkness of the storm. Thank God that in the hay it was not cold. The dried hay, grass, and field flowers exuded the warmth of the summer sun. Zlata ate frequently. She nibbled from above, below, from left, and from right. Her body gave forth an animal warmth, and Aaron cuddled up to her. He had always loved Zlata, but now she was like a sister. He was alone, cut off from his family, and wanted to talk. He began to talk to Zlata. Zlata, what do you think about what has happened to us, he asked. Zlata answered. If we hadn't found this stack of hay, we would both be frozen stiff by now, Aaron said. was the goat's only reply. If the snow keeps on falling like this, we may have to stay here for days, Aaron explained. Zlata bleated. What does ma mean? Aaron asked. You'd better speak up clearly. Ma, ma, Zlata cried. Well, let it be ma then, Aaron said patiently. You can't speak, but I know you understand. I need you, and you need me. Isn't that right? Ma. Aaron became sleepy. He made a pillow out of some hay, leaned his head on it, and dozed off. Zlata, too, fell asleep. When Aaron opened his eyes, he didn't know whether it was morning or night. The snow had blocked up his window. He tried to clear it, but when he had bored through to the length of his arm, he still hadn't reached the outside. Luckily, he had his stick with him and was able to break through to the open air. It was still dark outside. The snow continued to fall, and the wind wailed, first with one voice and then with many. Sometimes it had the sound of devilish laughter. Zlata, too, awoke, and when Aaron greeted her, she answered, Ma! Yes, Zlata's language consisted of only one word, but it meant many things. Now she was saying, We must accept all that God gives us, heat, cold, hunger, satisfaction, light, and darkness. Aaron had awakened hungry. He had eaten up all his food, but Zlata had plenty of milk. For three days, Aaron and Zlata stayed in the haystack. Aaron had always loved Zlata, but in these three days he loved her more and more. She fed him with her milk and helped him keep warm. She comforted him with her patience. He told her many stories, and she always cocked her ears and listened. When he patted her, she licked his hand and his face. Then she said, Ma! And he knew it meant, I love you too. The snow fell for three days, though after the first day it was not as thick, and the wind quieted down. Sometimes Aaron felt that there could never have been a summer, that the snow had always fallen, ever since he could remember. He, Aaron, never had a father or mother or sisters. He was a snow child, born of the snow, and so was Zlata. It was so quiet in the hay that his ears rang in the stillness. Aaron and Zlata slept all night and a good part of the day. As for Aaron's dreams, they were all about warm weather. He dreamed of green fields, trees covered with blossoms, clear brooks, and singing birds. By the third night, the snow had stopped, but Aaron did not dare to find his way home in the darkness. The sky became clear, and the moon shone, casting silvery nets on the snow. Aaron dug his way out and looked at the world. It was all white, quiet, dreaming dreams of heavenly splendor. The stars were large and close. The moon swam in the sky as in a sea. On the morning of the fourth day, 
Aaron heard the ringing of sleigh bells. The haystack was not far from the road. The peasant who drove the sleigh pointed out the way to him, not to the town and favor the butcher, but home to the village. Aaron had decided in the haystack that he would never part with Zlatte. Aaron's family and their neighbors had searched for the boy and the goat, but had found no trace of them during the storm. They feared they were lost. Aaron's mother and sisters cried for him. His father remained silent and gloomy. Suddenly, one of the neighbors came running to their house with the news that Aaron and Zlatter were coming up the road. There was great joy in the family. Aaron told them how he had found the stack of hay and how Zlatta had fed him with her milk. Aaron's sisters kissed and hugged Zlatta and gave her a special treat of chopped carrots and potato peels, which Zlatta gobbled up hungrily. Nobody ever again thought of selling Zlatta, and now that the cold weather had finally set in, the villagers needed the services of Reuven the furrier once more. When Hanukkah came, Aaron's mother was able to fry pancakes every evening, and Zlatta got her portion too. Even though Zlatta had her own pen, she often came to the kitchen knocking on the door with her horns to indicate that she was ready to visit, and she was always admitted. In the evening, Aaron, Miriam, and Anna played dreidel. Zlatta sat near the stove watching the children and the flickering of the Hanukkah candles. Once in a while, Aaron would ask her, Zlatte, do you remember the three days we spent together?' And Zlatte would scratch her neck with a horn, shake her white-bearded head, and come out with the single sound which expressed all her thoughts and all her love. Zlatte the Goat, read by the late Fireside Al Maitland, and as it happens, Hanukkah tradition. That Isaac Beshevis singer story was illustrated by Maurice Sendak, and it is published by HarperCollins. That was the first of our holiday readings for this year. You'll be hearing more over the next few weeks, including, of course, The Shepherd, also read by Al Maitland. This year, our annual broadcast of The Shepherd will fall on Friday, December 22nd. And this year's broadcast features an unexpected Hollywood tie-in. So mark your calendars for the 22nd and stay tuned for more readings in the days ahead. It doesn't take too many classic Canadian winter experiences to become kind of disenchanted with the whole slushy, icy, freezing, plan-ruining, back-tweaking, road-blocking, hairstyle-compromising experience, which might be why each winter so many of us special snowflakes struggle to appreciate all those special snowflakes. So it's nice to be reminded of how genuinely enchanting snow can be, especially when you're seeing it for the first time. Kir Patel moved from India to Sudbury, Ontario, two years ago. More recently, he was joined by his wife and daughter. He told CBC Sudbury how they all greeted their first snowfalls. After coming from extreme heat to a beautiful snowfall, like it's very exciting and it's very pleasant to see. I was very happy to uh, see the snowfall and I was like, like a small kid. I was also eager to play in the snow and... Uh, I gather, I call my friends and say, hey, come out, like we have a snowfall right now. It's the Sudbury's our f- first snowfall, so why don't you come out and we can play together? This year, when uh, when your daughter and wife were here, what did you do for the first time with them when they were experiencing winter? 
I told you like when I saw my first snowfall, I was very excited and the same way my daughter and my spouse, they both were excited to see the snowfall because they haven't seen the snowfall before. So uh, it was very excited for them. Like they also want to play and we want to, uh, uh, to play some activities for the sake of that. So we went to the Bell Park, uh, we got some skiing and we play with the snowballs. My daughter made a snowman. Uh, I, I teach her like how to make a snowman, how to put all the stuff like your scarves and the hats on the snowman so she learned actually about those stuff and uh, I guess like this year she's gonna make her own the snowman you know. Kier Patel speaking to the CBC's Kayla Garrett about his family's first experience with snow after moving from India to Sudbury Ontario. More kids in Ontario are being hospitalized with eating disorders. More kids overall, but specifically more boys. A new study found that over the last 17 years, the number of eating disorders among boys increased 416%. The vast majority of cases were still girls, but the most surprising increases were in teenage boys and boys aged 12 to 14. Dr. Sarah Smith is the lead author of the study. She's a child and adolescent psychiatrist at SickKids Hospital. We reached her in Toronto. Were you surprised by what your research yielded? So I did the study because clinically, many of my colleagues were saying they were seeing more males, younger kids, and those who had diagnoses other than anorexia or bulimia. And what that means clinically is that they were seeing more kids who often had reasons for changing their eating that weren't related to body, Mm -hmm. things like a fear of choking, or kids who had lived in larger bodies. And even though they'd made dramatic changes in their eating or exercise, they still didn't meet society's vision of what underweight is. Mm. And so I was not surprised by the findings because I do this work clinically day to day. But I do think for physicians or the healthcare providers who don't work eating disorders, that our results could be quite startling. The metrics can also be helpful, I can imagine, in in getting more help and treatment. Yeah, so that's the hope. We hope that in calling attention to the fact that increasing number of kids are requiring hospitalization who have these features we once considered atypical, that will make frontline healthcare providers, educators, parents more aware that disordered eating should be on their radar for children of both genders of different ages and those who live in larger bodies or who are not voicing a desire to lose weight. You know, I I know you're not surprised by the results because you you say you you see this, you know, you've seen this and and others have as well over the years. Um, But I wonder if you're surprised that this is the point we're at all of these decades later when we've known about eating disorders, how insidious they can be, how persistent they can be, uh, so that, that, it, that it hasn't been looked at in the way you have until now. And so historically, eating disorders are an area of psychiatry mm-hmm. that many people consider under-researched. We do have some evidence around treatments, but not as much as we might for other disorders. And 
Unfortunately, the pandemic brought a lot of attention to that. And so I'm hoping that moving forward, findings like this, that we need more data, we need more evidence, and we need to examine patients who don't align with our stereotypes will be a catalyst for change. What kinds of things are are the children that have come in? What kinds of things are they telling you? Among many young males I see, they may have changed their eating or their exercise because they wanted to be healthier or they wanted to be fitter for a sport. Um, and although they were not stating only that they wanted their body to look different, those changes in eating, in exercise, and other behaviors we consider concerning, things like vomiting, mm -hmm. still had the same impact on their physical health. And because they're young and developing, put them at risk of serious complications quite quickly. Yeah, there's so much pressure. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, it's it's not always about... I think there's a misconception that it's that it's only about uh, physical appearance. For a lot of people I know, it can be about control over one aspect of their life, or you know, trying to live up to to what they think their sport, as you've said, um, demands of them. Yeah. It's multi. It's very I, multifaceted. I would say it, it's complicated. Yeah. We don't know exactly what causes eating disorders. We know that most young people are exposed to the same media message. Many kids play these same sports and don't end up unwell. So it seems that for some patients, when they change their exercise or their diet, their brains get stuck in a way um, that comes to characterize this illness. And I think that's what differentiates them from others who are exposed to the same stressors who don't become unwell, but because we don't have good evidence to say exactly who is vulnerable, the conversations we should be having about prevention need to be more multifaceted mm -hmm. and more pervasive. Every person is different and brings different things, you know, when they speak to you, I'm sure. I wonder what you might say generally to a young person who is listening to our conversation now and is maybe going through something like this. I would stress to both young people and their caregivers that eating disorders are illnesses that can be treated. And although we often hear about the cases where people don't get well, there are many other cases where they do. And we know from research that early intervention and treatment improves outcomes. And so if you are worried, the best thing to do is speak to a healthcare provider or do a bit of your own research about what eating disorders are. So you're more equipped to express those concerns to others in your life. And for friends or caregivers, as you said, parents, are, what kinds of signs should they should they be looking out for? So I would be concerned about any child or adolescent who had a marked change in their eating. Perhaps they eliminate food groups, perhaps they're skipping meals, or who have changes in their exercise, suddenly they're doing a lot more, or there's concerns that they are vomiting mm -hmm. or hiding food. Anything that gives a parent or caregiver that niggly sense something is off, I would encourage them to worry about because eating disorders are often characterized by secrecy. Part of the illness is young people are ashamed or may not even want help. 
And so it's often the concern of those around them in their lives that helps them get the care they need. Mm -hmm. Dr. Smith, I'm glad we could speak. Thank you. Thank you very much. Dr. Sarah Smith is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at SickKids Hospital. We reached her in Toronto. For years now, public health workers have struggled to eradicate polio. And now there's finally a sign of progress in what seems like an unlikely place. As you've heard on the show before, the crippling children's disease, which can be fatal, persists in some parts of the world, including Afghanistan. Partly because, for years, as it waged an insurgency, the Taliban banned immunization campaigns. But now that the Taliban has taken power, it has reversed that stance and is encouraging people to get the shots. Dr. Hamid Jafari is the World Health Organization's Director of Polio Eradication. We reached him in Islamabad, Pakistan. Dr. Jafari, how much of a difference will this make now, now that the, the Taliban government in Afghanistan wants people there to get immunized against polio? How significant will it be for people there? So, you know, there has been a tremendous difference in the kind of access the program has obtained since after the uh, change in government in Afghanistan. Before the current regime came into place, there were large parts of uh, Afghanistan. And, you know, it varied from time to time, but anywhere from three to three and a half million children could not be consistently accessed in areas that were under the control of the Taliban. And so since they have come in to control the country, there is access all across the country. And so the program has been able to reach uh, many more children than it was able to reach uh, before because there was so much uh, fighting going on and there were uh, areas of active conflict and there were areas where uh, the Taliban were reluctant to to permit house-to-house vaccination. There had been bans before? Um, yes, so- that is correct. There was a ban in 2018 and lasted through the period until they came into mm-hmm. uh, came into power. What was behind those bans? So basically, what was behind those bans were, uh, what they kept saying to us was not their opposition to uh, uh, polio vaccination. It was particularly for security reasons. They said that it was too much of a security risk for them to allow large number of vaccinators and teams moving house to house in the areas that they controlled. But after such a long time of of you know telling people not to necessarily trust these shots, how willing are people, even with the ability to do so now, how willing are people to get their children immunized? So actually, the Taliban in Afghanistan have never said that the vaccines are not safe or they have never had a anti-vaccine uh, position. Yes, the the Taliban on the Pakistan side, have uh, made those statements and they even went through periods when they, they banned uh, vaccination in certain areas of Pakistan. But the Afghan Taliban have never really taken a anti-vaccine position. You are in Pakistan, as, we, as we've said. It's the only other country where polio is still uh, endemic. So what is the situation for, for healthcare workers there as they try to get young people immunized? 
So the uh, program in Pakistan is, uh, you know, like Afghanistan program is a very strong program. And they're um, reaching all children across the country, except there are a few pockets uh, where there has been an increase in militancy and increase in, in insecurity in parts of what we call the southern districts of the Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province. So that's where uh, the virus is surviving in Pakistan. Um, rest of Pakistan has been uh, actually without any endemic polio virus transmission for more than two years. So it's just in a handful of districts. How would you characterize how, based on the reports you're getting as these campaigns roll out, how people are receiving it, the kinds of questions they're asking before they get their children immunized, you know, after such a long time of, of not being able to, to, to get these vaccines? from reports that you're getting from Afghanistan? Yes, yeah, so in Afghanistan, there is actually demand for services and demand for vaccine. There are very, very few pockets where there is some clustering of vaccine hesitancy mm-hmm. and refusals. And those are mostly people who are not from that area. They may have come in from Pakistan and are are seeking refuge there or are staying there and are, are mistrustful of what's going on locally. But those are small, well-recognized pockets through, and we are working with those communities through their community leaders and religious leaders. So as you look to, to the future, how hopeful are you that the polio could be wiped out in Afghanistan? We are very optimistic because uh, the virus that is indigenous and endemic to Pakistan is only in a handful of districts in Pakistan. Similarly, vast majority of Afghanistan is free of polio virus circulation. There are only a couple of provinces in the eastern region of Afghanistan, particularly the Nangarhar province, where the endemic polio virus is persisting in Afghanistan. And there also, they have made a lot of uh, inroads. So we are beginning to see a decline in detection of paralytic polio cases, as well as the environmental surveillance uh, system in that region. So both of these countries are quite well positioned that if the program is able to get access, given the current contextual challenges, particularly on the Pakistan side. And we are also managing the vaccination of the communities that are repatriating from uh, Pakistan to Afghanistan to make Mm -hmm. sure that they are vaccinated. We are quite optimistic that there is very little virus left in these two countries and that we could see the end of polio in both of these countries next year. Next year? Yeah. How does that sit with you, you know, for this to be so close, to be in reach now? That is correct. I mean, we were expecting to to have been done really by this year. But, you know, we've had these uh, uh, security and, and, and some of this sort of related social challenges in particular pockets. But we are constantly innovating, working very closely with law enforcement agencies to be able to gain access uh, to those areas, engage community elders, religious leaders, tribal elders, uh, holding jirgas. What used to be the historic endemic foci and reservoirs of poliovirus, it's now just, you know, surviving in a very limited area. Mm -hmm. And that's what is giving us optimism that we can eliminate the remaining virus. Doctor, thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Dr. Hamid Jafari is the World Health Organization's Director of Polio Eradication. He's in Islamabad, Pakistan.
Maria has been hanging around outside the church in the small town of Whitefish, Ontario, west of Sudbury, for decades. But at Mass this past Sunday, she was gone, which was alarming to parishioners and clergy alike. Why would someone steal her? And how, since Maria is a bronze bell that weighs 400 pounds? Maria has been ringing in the churchyard of St. Christopher Catholic Church in Whitefish since the 1960s. Now she has mysteriously vanished. Ernie Hershap is the pastoral, pastoral council chair at St. Christopher Catholic Church. We reached him in Whitefish. Ernie, what happened when you went to church on Sunday? Well, we were sur- surprised and uh, concerned that our, our bell, which has been at the church for many years, uh, had disappeared. It, it's about 400 pounds. Where could it go? Well, that, that, that's a very good question. It's 400 pounds of uh, solid bronze uh, mounted uh, in a cradle, uh, very difficult to lift, very heavy. And that was our concern that somebody had, had made the effort to come and remove it. What are your theories so far? Uh, uh, right now, we're basically thinking that somebody saw some value in, in the bell being there, whether for scrap metal value uh, or, or something else, uh, and they decided that it was uh, an easy opportunity to uh, pick that bell up and actually look at salvage uh, mm-hmm. uh, money or something along those lines. Easy? How could it be? I mean, how would they even go about dismantling that? Well, it, actually, the weight itself is what deters people from moving it, but with the right number of people, it could be lifted out of the cradle and actually slid into the back of a pickup truck or other vehicle. So that's what, what uh, appears to have happened, is somebody backed up to it. It's mounted on the front lawn of uh, St. Christopher's Church in Whitefish and actually literally lifted uh, that heavy bell out of its cradle and moved it into the back of a vehicle. So it's not up high? It's on the lawn, so that makes it a bit easier. That's right, yeah. yeah. It's approximately just two to three feet off the ground. So you're pretty sure this wasn't just a prank and, and that it's not going to be returned? Well, our, our hopes is it was a prank and that it would be returned uh, uh, very shortly or down the road. Uh, but I think with now a week has gone by and we, we have not heard uh, about the bell and its whereabouts. Is it, I mean, there must be sentimental value um, but but for you and your community, but is there other value in this? No, the, the, the raw value of the metal itself, depending on the market at the time, is roughly about at the top end $3 a pound for bronze. So you're looking a little over $1,000 for the, I guess, the metal value involved. But where you can't put a price tag on that bell is the historical value. The, the bell's been... Uh, uh, basically in our community for over 120 years. So there's lots of, uh, lots of history attached to it, a lot of tradition, a lot of families, you know, marriages, uh, religious ceremonies are, have been tied to that bell. It's the sounds of your community. Ex- exactly, and uh, the community and also people uh, extended beyond the community. The bell was brought up uh, just in the early 1900s to a, a little community called Victoria Mine, which was a, a, a pioneer mining community northwest of Sudbury, and it was placed in the Catholic Church there at the time. And when that community closed in uh, the late 60s, the bell was moved to where it was at St. Christopher's Parish. It also has a name. Yeah, it, uh, when it was uh, manufactured and shortly thereafter, it was given the name Maria. Why? It was something done, I guess it was ordained uh, uh, and given a name. I guess it personalizes it. It gives the bell significance. 
and, and also, it's it's something that has carried through through all the years that people would refer to it as the Maria Bell. It makes me think of the sound of music and Maria. Hey, How do you hey, solve a problem like Maria? Exactly. <laughs> so it's it's you know it's not it's not just just a bell. It has got a long history with people and all the uh, all the different stages of their lives, their weddings, yeah. the christenings, uh, you know, uh, the beginning of mass at the church. All were tied into that bell. Can you describe what this particular bell sounds like? We've all heard church bells, certainly, but what does Maria sound like? Uh, it has a real distinctive tone, uh, a sort of a real low bellowing sound that, with very little effort, that sound uh, radiates throughout the entire community. So when the bell is rung, with very little effort, uh, that bell resonates for miles. So it basically, it's a calming sound, and it's a sound that basically, it sounds like tradition. It sounds like, uh, you know, uh, like home for a lot of people. Um, our, 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 uh, we see our job is getting an awareness out that our bell is missing and have people keep an eye open. And hopefully whoever uh, was involved in taking of the bell return it. Uh, we'd, we'd love to see that bell returned with no questions asked, and our, our hopes are, are that that bell will be ringing again this coming Christmas. That's your message to the that's, thieves? That's our message, yeah. In the meantime, what are you going to do? And meanwhile, we're going to do the best we can to make people aware that the bell's missing. Hopefully people will uh, be, uh, have, be alerted to that, keep yeah. their eyes open. Someone shows up with open. a 400-pound bell, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, and if somebody you know knows of it, to you know, there's the avenues of going, going through police, or we we would even appreciate a phone call that the, this is where you can find the bell. Uh, we would go again, no questions asked, and we retrieve the bell and put it back into its its uh, its its normal spot. Uh, so so that's that's where uh, we we would like to go with this, and uh, our goal, and we're optimistic that. We'll see that bell back at St. Christopher's uh, uh, Church again. Well, I hope Maria does come back to you and sings again there. Ernie, thank you. You're very welcome. Ernie Hershap is the Pastoral Council Chair at St. Christopher Catholic Church. We reached him in Whitefish, Ontario. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.